Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends, your family, and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. Hey folks, I am so excited to share this episode and the conversation I had with my guest today, Richard Diaz. But as a brief prelude to his introduction, you know, I need to say that as regular listeners have probably become very aware of is that I don't know in advance the direction of my interviews with my guests and actually today was no exception. What Richard and I quickly gravitated to was a discussion about the many aspects of the current global economy, macro, we talked Canada, we talked US and where we see things going and I have to say that we could have easily gone a longer given we both love this particular topic. Anyway, let me give you a little bit of background about Richard Diaz, who is the founder and head of research for Acorn Macro Consulting. He is passionately driven to provide quality research to investors by really drawing upon his many years of experience in the financial services area in both the buy and sell side for firms. He began his career at BCA Research in Montreal and London in the UK, then as the global macro strategist for Talisman Global Asset Management, once again in the UK, and most recently as a global strategist for Pictet Asset Management in London as well. Now, Richard has gained a reputation and is relied on to provide very clear and actionable insights for asset allocation and portfolio construction. And his commitment to integrity, to originality, which you'll really pick up on today, and his clarity of thought is at the core of his business's 
values. He is a CFA charter holder, a BCom in finance and economics from McGill University in Montreal, and he is absolutely a blast to have conversations with about the economy and uh, really enjoy this conversation as I hope you do as well. Listen in. Richard Diaz, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Dude, I'm excited to have you on the show uh, because I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the Looney Hour and I'm a fan of Richard Diaz. Thank you very much. Now there's two, you and my mom. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, Richard, uh, so just so the listeners have a little bit of a background, you know, I, you and I, this is the first time that we're having a conversation. And, uh, but I, because I had Steve Suresky on the show, whatever it was a couple of years ago, and, and you and Steve Suresky and Keith, and I don't remember Keith's last name. You started Dicker. The, Dicker, that's right. Well, the Iceman or Iceman something. Ice Cap Management. Ice, ice Cap Management. Good plug for Keith. Good plug for Keith. He's funny too. So anyways, you guys do the show, The Looney Hour, and uh, you get into some great conversations and topics around what's happening economically, and you talk real estate, and you all each have your view of the world and a, a level of expertise that's really fun to listen to. So uh, welcome to the show again. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So, Richard, you know, I always start the show one fundamental way. You know, if uh, somebody walks up and says, so, Richard, what do you do? What's your answer to that question? That's a good one. Um, I usually try, I usually say I try to predict the future and try to cash in on the way. Um, Yeah, my job is to really, um, you know, it's, it's more arts and science and and obviously in financial markets and i I look at economies and political economy stock markets and bonds and stuff but ultimately that's the job the job is to try to predict the future and try to cash in a little bit on the way okay well let's talk about that because your company is uh acorn macro consulting limited so tell me a little bit about your company your business what you do and give me some insights into that sure so um, I, my company is basically an independent research provider. We help institutional investors, um, pension funds, hedge funds navigate the world of financial markets. You'd be surprised how appealing, independent, honest, forthright advice is. And um, we provide this service um, to institutional institution investors. And what we also try to do is we try to distill some of the work that we do for those institutions into retail investors. So we, we sort of, that's like, we have this raw material that we, we have this raw material. Sorry, Patrick, can I start over? Sure. Sorry, I didn't, of course. I fucked that up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you shouldn't have told me to start, I could do that. There we sorry, go. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> Anyways, all right, check. Um, so Acorn Macro Consulting is a boutique macro research firm. We help institutional investors, um, pension funds, hedge funds, small family offices, navigate the world of financial markets and economics. Mm-hmm. Uh, we look at the world top down and we try to provide independent, prescient, pragmatic solutions to investors' questions. Now, I'm, I want to talk about that because there's a lot, of course, that there's a lot of in behind all that, of course, is what's happening economically. And I want to have that conversation with you. But What's your background? So how did this journey into being uh, an entrepreneur start? How did this, you know, did you come out of the shoot that way? What what drove you or what inspired you to start Acorn Macro Consulting? 
the honest truth about it is um, I did it for love, um, is, is the real truth. I grew up in Montreal. So if I can start at the beginning, I grew up in Montreal, went to McGill, didn't really know what I was getting into, and frankly applied to the first job that I could get. Um, I, my first day on the job was June 2008 which was a really interesting time to be in the global <laughs> macro investing world. Okay. I had front row seats to the global financial crisis. I watched Ben Bernanke drink water in front of the Senate Banking Committee, and I could see his quaking hand as he, um, as he introduced the concept of quantitative easing. And I worked at a company called BCA Research for five years. Um, three years into my tenure there, I was uh, transferred to London, um, which was which changed my life really. But before I went to, I mean, I had no idea I wanted to be a researcher. To be very honest with you, I'd always been interested in economics. I'd always read The Economist as a kid. Um, my parents owned a grocery store in downtown Montreal. They were immigrants to this country, and uh, that's what immigrants do, right? They, sure. they own grocery stores and they try to send their kids to really fancy schools. And I was. Lucky that my parents prioritized education above all else, certainly above Saturday morning cartoons, because instead of watching cartoons, my dad would drag me to the store and I would watch and I would uh, watch him, you know, set up the cash and the fruit stand and and make sandwiches, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, so it's, you know, it's a long way of saying that I, I you know, I, I worked for BCA Research in Montreal and I was transferred to London and I ended up working for a hedge fund there. I really fell in love with markets. I fell in love with trying to understand the world. I really fell in love with under, trying to understand what's going on and where. Um, you know, I have a knack for accumulating and retaining knowledge. I can't spell very well, but I can definitely remember basically all kinds of different facts and figures about countries and sectors and, and um, different parts of the world and why this is important here and why it's important there. and. And I just really, really enjoyed the learning. Um, and that's really why I say, you know, for me, it's, it's, you know, the expression, you find something you love to do and you never work a day in your life. And I, I, you know, for a lot of people, that's sort of bullshit. But I think in my case, it, it really is. You know, my job is to learn and my job is to share and, and to teach. And, um, and for me, it's just you're constantly, you know, you're constantly sort of proven right and you're constantly embarrassed and humbled and all you really can do is just like get up and just work really, really hard to try to understand the world. And the better you understand the world, the better you can sort of predict what's going to happen. And hopefully, like I said from the beginning, make a little bit of money on the way. Yes. Where do, uh, now, where did your parents immigrate from? My, my mom's from Portugal, yep. um, just, uh, just north of Lisbon about an hour, a really small little town in, in the mountains. And my father's from a tiny island off the coast of Senegal. It's an African archipelago called um, Cape Verde. And, uh, you know, I'm really proud of them. They lived the immigrant dream, um, really. I, I'd say, you know, there's, you know, people say there's an American dream. I would say there's, a, you know, for me and my family, it was the immigrant dream. They came here with nothing, no money. And, you know, I'm not even sure my dad had a pair of shoes. And um, they... You know, they sacrificed a lot. They instilled an incredible work ethic in me and my sister, who's probably the good one. I'm, I'm the bad one. Of course, but, of course. Uh, the and, um, and, they, um, and they had a really hard, hard life. And I think they taught me, 
you know, a couple lessons, you know, don't make excuses. There's no such thing as quit. I mean, all this sort of, sort of cliches that, you know, the older I get, the more and more I appreciate how important that upbringing, that kind of structure was. They also, I mean, sent me to a school, which just really taught me to use my imagination and to question sort of everything. And, and I think the combination of, of that work ethic and that sort of willingness and ability to grind out and sort of the creativity and imagination that I have has really, really sort of propelled me. But like I said, ultimately, it's, it's the love of the game. I love markets. I love financial markets. And for me, it's, it's fun, really. It's, it's, um, I mean, today's not a good day. and markets are down 4%, but, but most, most days, it's, it's a good day. <laughs> it's, been, it's actually been a kind of, it's kind of been a, a rough uh, week, so to speak. You know, past 10 days has actually been kind of. Yeah. But listen, let's, I want to talk about economics and just, you know, I want to get there. Yeah, we'll get there. For sure. Now, you know, it's, what's interesting about, you know, what you talk about, not knowing that research was going to be your thing. So, you know, within the real estate investment network, you know, we've been around 30 years. I've been part of this community for 20. I've been part of the organization since 2008, 2007, actually. And which was interesting. I moved to British Columbia. My wife and I bought a house in British Columbia in 2008 when everything just crashed and you know as as financially okay as we were i just remember going to get a mortgage and it was not even a big mortgage it was back then we paid you know half a million bucks for a townhouse and just to kind of get grounded and we you know so it was basically a mortgage for 400,000 and it was just the hoops we had to to jump through to get it and uh you know we're closing i think we got it a day and a half we got the final approval you know, like the mortgage approval. So that was what was going on back then. I mean, it, I guess at the end of the day, it wouldn't have mattered because we were going to just write the check and pay cash for it but because we had the financial wherewithal then to do it. But it was just such an interesting time back then. And within the Real Estate Investment Network, of course, we're looking at the research as how it affects the housing market. And as a national organization, that's where our focus was. But here's the thing. That's a kind of a long-winded way to get to this part of the story, which is, I always have had research in my on my mind, looking at what's going on economically. I understand the you know the the economic drivers and the economic influ- influencers that affect a real estate market, but it really wasn't until and we have a research team, and but I was always paying attention to it. I was presenting, I was talking all the time, and but it wasn't really until COVID hit, and then it's like then I became obsessed, and I am. I don't like any, I shouldn't say I don't like, yeah, I don't really like anything that's happened over the past two and a half years, but I can say one thing, it's a fascinating time to be alive when you look at what's going on in the world economically and trying to crack the code of what the future might look like just based on the information that's in, available. So my my point of that is, is that I have just really become obsessed with the research of, on, on things aside from what my team provides. So, uh, I really get, I don't know what it is in my brain that clicked. I just don't have the memory you do. I, I didn't know memory. <laughs> I mean, I thought I smoked it all the way in high school, but I, I go figure. <laughs> go figure. Um, I, I can, I'm, I'm pretty good at information retention. Well, that's a great gift to have. Now you work, you, you know, you're working with institutional investment groups. What is it? What, what does that look like? What is kind of what's behind the, uh, or underneath the hood of that? Sure. Well, there's different types of institutions. You know, you've got your, you know, you've got your big behemoths, you know, your CalPERS, you know, the California pension funds, you know, your Ontario teachers pension funds. I don't qualify for, for <laughs> those kinds of interactions, although I'm sure I could give those guys a run for their money. 
Um, there's different types of institutions. Like I said, there's, you know, big pension funds, there's small pension funds, there's hedge funds, there's family offices, of course. You know, there's, um, and, and, and so those are the kinds of institutions that I generally work with and, and have done for, work for rather. I mean, that's that's what I mean by institutions, but there's mm -hmm. also private investors that I've, I work with a lot and some of my clients, um, you know, one of my product offerings is a much, you know, much, much lower price point, sort of a low touch offering that anyone can sign up for. It's a modest amount of money and it sort of gives you insight into into, into, what, into what I'm thinking and access to a lot of the output that I use and generate for my other clients. And I always thought that that was, you know, you sort of, um, you know, when you're making, when you have a really fancy restaurant, you got all this extra stuff at the end of the night. Well, imagine you take all that extra, very high quality ingredients, I, I would say, and, you know, you, you, you turn it into a food truck and you drive it around the city and, you know, you sell these, uh, you know, sell whatever you can off the food truck. And so that's the way sort of I, I've always thought of it and characterized it. I don't think research has to be particularly expensive. Um, I think there's sort of a uh, like there's sort of a, a myth and sort of an aura around finance that I, I think doesn't belong, frankly, because at the end of the day, we're all just trying to guess and predict the future. And so I try very hard to challenge that from an intellectual standpoint. And also, I just try to challenge that um, in my own the way I think about it and the way I train my analysts and, and that kind of thing. And so that's something I really believe in. Well, you, I, I've got chart envy. You have all the great charts. What the <laughs> I hell? worked very hard to make those charts. <laughs> what the hell? You got some great charts. I've always got. I follow you uh, on Twitter, of course, and uh, you've oh, always cool. got some. You, you've always got some great charts that you're throwing up there. And uh, well, I think for me, Twitter is a really interesting medium. I think you know, a lot of people hate it. I think sometimes it can be quite tiresome. But what I really, what I really, really care about is I care about the truth. As, you know, as close to it as you can get. And I really care about sharing information. And I don't think people should be afraid of reality. I think reality should be confronted, embraced, and enjoyed. And I don't think you can make good decisions, whether it's a mortgage rate from a personal standpoint, whether it's a student loan, whether it's a central bank um, deciding on interest rates, whether it's a government investing in research and development or tax breaks. I think what matters is information. And, you know, my father used to always say knowledge is power. And it's one of those things that when you're a teenager, you, of course, totally ignore. And then when you become an adult, you obsess over. Um, but that's, I think, very important to me. You know, when it, when we look at uh, this, is just a, a, and I think it applies here. So in the real estate world, and I know you're not in all that you do, you're not really a real estate guy. Like you, you're, you depend on Steve for that background stuff, right? That's interesting. Yeah, you got to know, you know yourself. Know, know your strengths, know your weaknesses. And yeah, real yeah. estate's not something I, I'm too keen on. Yeah, you're not interested in. Yeah. So, but there's a, there's a phrase we use in the in our world of real estate, which is the more knowledge you have, the less money you need. Because there's a big conversation out there that says, you know, I need I don't have enough money to invest in real estate because we're always talking about investing in real estate, creating a financial future by making sure that you have some real estate, those hard assets in your portfolio for, you know, that financial future that you look at, whether it be security or certainty or freedom or whatever, you know, words you want to use to describe that financial future and that real estate's the way to do that. But what gets in the people in people's way often is the fact they go, I don't have enough money. 
and you know, or they don't have enough time, or there's lots of reasons not to. And what we say is, you know, ultimately, especially when it comes to money, the more knowledge you have, the less money you need, because there are so many strategies and there's so many ways to put capital to work in in the world of real estate. Is that the same in the game that you play? I mean, yes and no. Um, I think so. Right away, no, because you know it's it's in the same you know. You need a little bit of money to make money in the sense that if you if you don't have any disposable income whatsoever, you certainly can't save, you can't invest, et cetera. But I would say absolutely yes. And I'll give you just a really quick example. You know, young people don't realize how important something like compounding is and how re- repeated good behavior over a, a long amount of time, a long period of time can really, really like provide excellent, excellent mm. um, results. And someone who, you know, if you're 28 years old and you're just making a little bit of money and, you know, but if you can save a hundred bucks a month and you dump that hundred bucks into a TFSA or whatever, or some kind of savings account for non-Canadian listeners, um, you know, at the end of the year, you've got $1,200. And at 28, you do that for five years, you know, five times, I'm terrible at math, you know, you got $5,000, you know? And so, you, you know, if you get some kind of return, maybe five, ten percent return, you're up to, you know, up to seven. And I think what people often feel like is that they have to make lots of money before they start saving. And I think that that's a habit that I wish a lot of young people would break. And and I just and, and especially in this day and age where you can buy and you have it really, really have easy access to ETFs, for example, exchange traded funds, and you have access to the stock market and other kinds of investment vehicles and stuff like that. I mean, with, with really, really straightforward and simple and sort of not riskless, but responsible sort of strategies, I think you can, you can really get ahead. And I would recommend people do that really young. And so back to your point about not having that much money, you can do it. You know, let's, let's talk about this a little bit. You know, you're, you're a young man, but you know, these days everybody's young to me. So the, the question that, you know, I, you know, you talk about, let's say millennials or just young people in general, you know, I learned a long time ago and, and I, and I think it was what the way I was raised as well is live below your means. Don't take on extraordinary debt. That isn't actually an asset. You know, do not get into consumer debt. Don't run your credit cards up. I've never done any of that. You know, my wife, Stephanie, and I have been business owners. We've worked our asses off. We've made a lot of money and we've lost a lot of money. So there's two, you know, you know, invest your capital and, and then preserve capital. Trust, you know, you know, be careful of who you trust. Those are expensive lessons that I've learned over the years. But I want to go back to just this millennial conversation. And it could be about anybody, I guess. But because there's so much conversation, so many headlines around millennials, uh, Richard, what's your thoughts just in terms of the, you know, I think about what you shared with your parents bringing you up, being entrepreneurs and being immigrants and work hard and all the work ethic that they've taught you. And probably even around money, what you gained respect around how you handle money, where you spend it, where you don't. Do you think that given what's happening in the world today, that there is no patience? It's like, I, you know, what is it? YOLO. You only live once. That's the new, that's the new term. Do you see that in your, in your world? Is that something that you're facing or that you kind of maybe look at and go, geez, I wish these guys would get their shit together. So I, I think I have, I have really, really strong views on this and yeah. it might be a little bit different than what you expect. I think every single thing my parents taught me was with respect to money 
proved to be the wrong decision. And I'll, and I'll say, and I'll, and I'll explain to you why. Because my parents taught me to be conservative, yep. to save, yep. to not spend beyond my means, to not take on much debt, mm-hmm. and to be very responsible. But the last 15 years have taught us, sorry, since 20, oh, 2008, have taught us that that was the exact wrong way to make lots of money. And it's a function, I would argue, of the central bank, central banks and governments insisting on real interest rates. And that's something that's something that gets me really hot into the collar because what what do I mean by that? What I mean is the the right way to make money in this country in the last 15 years would have been to borrow way more money than you should have and buy a non-productive asset, housing. And that's virtually not at all what your my parent, immigrant parents would have taught me. And so, and and the reason I find so that's why you know when millennials squawk and squeak about how you know they got the shaft, it's undeniable. Central banks depressed interest rates. Forgive me for being a little bit technical here, but central banks kept interest rates below the rate of inflation for ten years, and and you know show me a negative real interest rate, and I'll show you a housing bubble. And so people who were who wanted to start businesses are fools. Why why work when you can borrow and invest in a, in a rental property? People who save money are fools. Why save money when your interest rates are negative? Now, I think that that's just, you know, a happen sense of history. Now, back to your original question, do I think millennials in general are okay? I think, you know, I think there's two. I think there's two sort of spheres. There's some people who who talk to me and have the same conversation say, you know, Rich, I did all the right things and I'm way behind. And then you, and then, you know, they speak to their friends that did all kinds of reckless things with their money and are way ahead. And I, and I, and I think that, I think the, why I get, you know, the conversations we have with Keith and Steve and, and, and other, my clients, especially is, is really a function of this. Um, there has, this, what central banks have done is really kind of a real disservice to our generation. And I think we're going to be paying for it for a long time. I think what central banks have done is criminal. And that's what I think. And and we're going to get about that. But we're going to, we're going to talk about that for sure. Yeah, sorry, I'm getting ahead of ourselves. No, 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 but it's perfect. No, that's a, It's a perfect setup for where I would like to go with this conversation. But I want to go back in, in really, you know, you know, the value that I always want to bring to listeners is, number one, my listeners on this particular show are actually quite sophisticated. Many of them are investors in the real estate world. They're also now into crypto and other things. We're looking at what's happening in the market. So I think these kinds of conversations are really, really valuable. You know, the thing that I would add, and the only thing I would expand on with, let's say, your parents or my parents, you know, I'm a boomer, like, you know, I'm 64 years old. I, you know, I'm, I've, I have a background that was very conservative. My parents were very conservative, you know, but at the, at the end of the day, you could save your way back then to being wealthy. You really could. I mean, gosh, when I was thinking about when I was in the seventies, I could put my money in the bank and get 12%, uh, you know, 10%. On just money sitting in my savings account, you know, so really savers could actually do okay back then. And what I think your parents did and my parents did was they did taught us, taught us, they did teach us to respect money, to be conservative in terms of how we spent it. In other words, you know, are we really out, 
you know, living into our egos and, and spending money that way? Or are we living, you know, conservatively and mindfully of what money is, what it does, how it supports our, our lifestyle? Now, the, what shifted, of course, in that is what you described, which is, you know, they didn't, te- they didn't teach us how to invest money, per se. You know, some parents did. Your parents didn't teach you. My parents didn't teach me. My parents were very, very, you know, for years we were, like, totally on the wrong side of the tracks. It wasn't until far later in life that, you know, they kind of went into that middle class world, if you will. Uh, by that time, I was out of the house. But the point of this is that I think that times have changed. You and I can totally be thinking about what central banks are doing even globally, but let's just talk about Canada and what it's done. And that's all, uh, uh, that's all part of what's happened globally anyways. But the point is this, is that times have changed and it's up to millennials to change with the times. You know, you can either be a victim of what the circumstances are, or I know that you're like me, I believe you are like me is, is in others, is that in, in amongst all this chaos and the crap that's hitting the fan these days, there is going to be opportunities or there is opportunities. Absolutely. No, no, I totally agree. You know, totally and, and well, that's, I mean, that's why I have a job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we look at what's happening and we see these opportunities. And I think that, you know, the, the thing that I, I, you know, what, what, to your point is that some of these millennials are getting on whatever it is, Robin hood or whatever those sites are, or their Bitcoin or, you know, there's lots of all the stories about, you know, we did this and, you know, did a thousand bucks and I bought a Lamborghini, you know, first off, they bought a Lamborghini, which, you know, and you go, okay, well, how, how's that going to serve you down the road? And so there's lots of young guys that hit it out of the park, but there's many, many who have not, they blew that $2,000 that they had. They, they rolled the dice, they took risks, you know, they didn't think it through. And, and so there's a result, there are consequences to that. So where am I going with that? It's all to say that I think that as much as I sympathize with millennials, and it is a different world for sure, I think they have to pay attention to what's going on in the world. And rather than make what's happening wrong, no different than your parents did or my parents did or we do, is they just have to embrace it differently. I don't know. That's probably philosophical. But there's another angle to this, though. I think a lot of people, you know, ex post. You know, we're at the end of a 40-year bond bull market. Yeah. So what do I mean by that? The interest rates went from 20, let's just say big numbers here, 20% to zero. It's my view. It's my view professionally. It's what I tell my clients. It's what I write about, that we're at the end of that bond bull market. And, you know, a lot of people got really rich thinking they're a genius when all they really played was the MCAP game. You're a real estate guy, you'll understand, you know, a market cap game, right? As your, as your interest rate comes down, you know, you, the, the value of your property goes up. And I think that whether it's, you know, the generation before us or Generation X or whatever, I mean, yes, I mean, a lot of people really, really made a lot of money and pat themselves on the back in a world where interest rates collapse. And I think it's a much, much different world when interest rates are either flat for several years or, God forbid, rise, like they did from 1962 or 1960 to 1988 or whatever it is. And um, I think in that environment, I think it's a, it's just it's going to be really fun for me. I mean, like I told you from the beginning, I really love this job, and it's, and for me, it's just a fascinating, fascinating world, right? Because you've got an entire generation who only know how to invest when interest rates go down, and now all those people 
are either retiring or are, you know, getting on an age. And now the world is telling you, oops, interest rates are not going to go down anymore. Inflation for the first time in a generation is going to be a thing. Um, and, and I think it's, I mean, I think there's loads and loads of opportunities and I'm happy to share some of them, but, um, I think it's just a, a really different, we're in a paradigm shift and, you know, I thought it was one in 2008 and I, and I was wrong and I think it's one now and hopefully I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Well, you're the optimist guy, whereas yeah, you know, on on your on your podcast with Steve and Keith, you're kind of more the glass half full, and Keith seems to be the guy more glass half empty. What do you see when you let's talk a little bit about this? So, when you look at rates and where they're at today, my view of the world is this. Here's I'll give you my view, so that if I'm you know, and I know it's just my view of the world right now. I think that as much as we're seeing rates come up, I don't think they're going to be sustainable unless, of course, I mean, economically. If they go too high, the world's going to crash. I mean, at the end of the day, we we can't continue to increase rates because it'll slow the economy down far too much. I, I don't think the economy, and it's hard to get data, as you know, especially around Canada. You know, U.S. seems to produce data far, far more, you know, like it's more current and it's easier to access than Canada. But if we look at what's happening, I look at interest rates, fixed rates can go up. The variable rates, I think, are going to stay low, and I think they're actually going to come back down probably in 2023. That's my view of it. They may go up another, will they go up a full percent? Maybe. Let's say Let's say variable rates do. I just don't see them. I think they're going to have to hit the brake because when you look at GDP of Canada, the fact that it makes up you know, whatever. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of numbers out there. I, I usually generally look at GDP that real estate makes up 10, 12%. And I know there's some believe that's even oh, higher. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so you start to slow that housing market down and you're going to start losing jobs. You're going to start, you know, construction's going to go, you know, start to come off, uh, employment, unemployment's going to rise and, and people are going to stop spending money which is already starting to happen to some degree. So I just don't see it as an extended. I, I believe that variable, you know, regardless of what happens in the bond market and what fixed rates do, I think that variable uh, will will stay relatively low. Now, and just for perspective, and I know prices were lower then, but back when I started investing in 2000 in real estate, I think I was, I want to say 6.5% rates back then. So I was still doing the numbers. I was still cash flowing on real estate, different time. I get it. But anyways, that's my view of it. That's, I just wanted to open that. I wanted to pitch you that softball and you could hit it back to me or whatever. I think, I think, so there's lots to unpack there. I think that the way I've sort of, the way I've sort of characterized your, your points there, I think that there are three related, but separate ideas. There's the short term interest rate path, which I, by the way, completely agree with you. I think they'll raise interest rates, the mark, I mean, what's going on in Russia, China's stupid COVID policy, um, you know, there, there's the U.S. tightening when they probably shouldn't be a tightening, Canada following suit, Canada basically just tracks the U.S. Tiff Macklin could be replaced by a penguin in a top hat. Um, <laughs> and um, and so on a, on a short term, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's very, very difficult for a for interest rates to rise anywhere near as quick and as and as aggressively as what's being priced in. Priced in is what's happened in a banker's acceptance note or for Fed fund futures rate or what, what, what have you. Yeah. So I, I agree with that short-term interest rate. 
the, the longer term interest rate, we'll park that for a second because I think that's a fascinating conversation. And I think that has a lot to do with demographics and you know, whether or not people want higher interest rates is irrelevant. It's <laughs> true. You know, so it, it doesn't matter if it, the economy can't handle it. I think that's exactly what we're going to deal with. But before we get to that, I think the real estate game is interesting. And, you know, I can't speak to the real estate story as, as well or as eloquently as you or Steve or, you know, other people who's make, who look at this as their livelihood. But what I, the way I look at it is a top-down global strategist. And for me, what ultimately matters is two things. One is population growth. And so this is why, you know, there's a lot of people who are are very sanguine or very negative on the housing market in Canada. But the reality is Canada's government, in their infinite wisdom, like them or love them, are going to allow 1.5 million people to enter this country over the next three or four years. Just to give you some context, that's more immigration than the United States is allowed. Right. In the United States' economy and population is roughly 10 times the size of Canada. So, you know, you, you can you, one can say that there's, you know, interest rates will tank the economy. And, and I am and very sympathetic to that. And I think you're, all, you're already starting to see with just a tiny bit of incre- increase, a significant slowdown in volumes and transactions and sentiment and all that. But you keep letting in 400,000 people into this country all between the ages of, let's be honest, you know, 18 and 45. It, it doesn't matter what happens to interest rates. You have this. You have this kind of the water is rising, and you can have negative impulses like interest rates and sentiment and global like um, you know global fracturing of the financial economic order. People need somewhere to live, and they aren't making houses fast enough. And so you know, and that's and that's where I think you have to balance the negativity around interest rates, which I think is a very compelling argument with the sort of blunt force trauma of literally a mil, 1.5 million people entering this economy. And so that, that's why, you know, as, as, as negative as I can be on the Canadian economy, one way, one surefire way to grow your, 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 your economic pie is by letting shitloads of people into your country. I mean, it's, it's really quite as straightforward as that. Now, is that good for productivity? Probably not. Is that good for cultural and political cohesiveness? Probably not. Is it good for finding a place in kindergarten or daycare or hospital, um, you know, hop, uh, or having enough beds to probably not, but that's, that's the deal our government's made with the devil and they're going to have to live with the consequences. But, and so that's, that's the real estate game on the long-term thing. I think ultimately what matters to interest rates is savings and investment. And as much as millennials get a huge amount of airplay because we're growing size of the prime age workers. So what's a prime age worker? Prime age worker is someone aged between 24, let's say, and 55. That's a prime age worker. So just to give you an idea, in the United States, there's about 145, 147 million people who are employed. Um, 100 million of them don't 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 kill me if I get this wrong exactly, but but let's say it's roughly 100 million of them are between the ages of 100, 24 and 55, and so and you have to understand where all the wealth and where lots of the savings have been accumulated is in a portion of that demo, of, of outside of that demographic, and those people are going to stop working, e.g., stop saving, and they're going to stop start spending. They're going to draw down on those savings, and they're going to spend. And that's why when people say, you know, real interest uh, interest rates can't rise, 
I, I don't necessarily believe that that's true. I think there's a real demographic kind of, you know, you know, think of a tsunami, right? You, it's a slow wave that you don't see when you're far out on, on the ocean, but you know, you, you, it's a powerful, long, uh, long wavelength that's coming, whether you like it or not. And I think as the baby boomers draw down on their savings, it'll be interesting that, you know, people who want to invest will be, there's going to be competition. And I think it'll pop interest rates higher and higher and higher. Okay, so there's so much to talk about, and, and, Sorry. and no, that's no, I just love it because there's there's so many things that I want to that you actually talked about there. So first off, I want to give you a little uh, insight that you can you can use with Steve one day. So because he looks at it, he's an investor, he's a real estate investor himself, and I and I know that he has clients that are investors, but his his he's still selling. Primary, he's buying and selling homes for his clients. That's, I think, primarily his focus. And I don't know yeah, that to I don't know I that to be that true. Too. But you know, yeah. But here's the thing, you know, for you know, 32 years that the real estate investment network has been around, and for most of those years, we had what we use what we call is the long-term real estate success formula, and and it is a proven way to look at the economic fundamentals that drive real estate. Our job as real estate investors is to look into the future, say where is real estate going. We don't really care where it's been. We don't even really care where it is per se. We it, that's all good information. We have to pay attention to it. But really, we're rental housing providers. Okay, it's a nicer way to say we're landlords. So at the end of the day, four hundred thousand people moving into this country every year for us as rental housing providers. Good news. We like it. We need to be that person because most immigrants coming into this country, by the way, don't have a credit rating. They don't know if the job's going to be culturally. They don't know where they want to live. They don't know what city. They don't know what neighborhood. And that takes a couple of years for that all to happen. So here's the long-term real estate success formula with that little bit of background on that conversation. First off, you've got GDP. You know, if we just use GDP and say, well, what is GDP actually? Well, it's an economic snapshot of the health of a country, of a province, of a city. And when we have positive GDP, we means generally that there's churn, right? So there's productivity happening, there's jobs happening, there's, you know, services being provided and people are working. So what happens in a province, for example, or a city where you got positive GDP is that you get interprovincial or immigration into that city. Why? Because people are looking for jobs. They're going to go where the jobs are. Now, once you have jobs and people moving into a region, what starts to happen is you get rental demand. So as you get rental demand, vacancy rates go way down because of the supply and demand imbalance. And then ultimately it takes about, you know, then rents start to go up and you start hearing people talk about how high rents are. And then about two years later, after a positive GDP kind of number comes out in a particular region that was maybe softer and now jobs are there, then you start to see demand for housing increase. Okay, and then of course supply demand again. There's there's an increase in demand, and then ultimately we see prices go up. Now the absolute opposite of that whole scenario is true. You take GDP into negative territory, in, into a recession, for example. Alberta is a classic example of that. In let's say 2009, 2010, the recovery, all those things, you start to see what happened. Vacancy rates go up. Uh, you get uh, outflow of of migration, you get interprovincial migration of people leaving that province, leaving that city. Rents come down because the demand is not there to, and there's more supply. 
people are losing jobs, so they sell their houses. There's a flood of houses onto the market, and then prices go down. Now that's that formula. Either way, always is is proven time and time again. Now, in amongst all that, there are the influencers, interest rates, politics, uh, you know, black swan event, because those will actually affect real estate. So when we're looking at real estate from that perspective, those are all the things that I'm constantly looking at and that the research team is looking for. And we get kind of granular. Like I say, we get into what city and, and really what's happening in any given city in, in the country. But that, that happens all the time. Now, interest rates are an interesting conversation because they're considered an influencer. And influencers are just that. They're, they're not necessarily long-term, although they can last a number of years, they're still considered an influencer because politics can come in. Let's say a government comes in, changes policy, that has an influence. Those are the things that we're considering. So we look at real estate and we look at the economic fundamentals that drive real estate. That's where we're making decisions from. That's where we make decisions from. Lots of people get into FOMO and they buy real estate. And that's where you're going to see. I think Steve has mentioned that. You'll start to see investors really get themselves into trouble that we're just buying thinking that real estate's only ever going to go up and we're going to sell that yeah, pre-built. I mean, so in my world, you'd call those secular, you have secular trends and cyclical trends. So the secular trends might be productivity growth, population, job creation, uh, the age of the population, household formation, employment, and wage growth. And then you might have us, and then, I mean, some of them, they overlap, obviously, in some cases, but more cyclical stuff might be, you know, um, economic activity, interest rate policy, bank lending, senior loan officer surveys, you know, sentiment, business sentiment, stuff like that. I think that that, yeah. although there are people who would argue that some fit in other categories and whatever it is. Totally. But I, 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 yeah. There's nuances yeah. in all of it, right? Of course there is. Of course I, there is. I mean, what's happened with what's going on with COVID and what the pandemic created and, you know, as far out of it as we are, it's, it's, it's you know, it's going to be there for, the effects of it are going to be there forever. I mean, the world's changed forever and, you know, there's no going back to any whatever some would consider normal, I don't believe. And it's certainly not economically. And I don't think we've felt globally we're, we're still got a lot of economic pain to feel, you know, going forward in all of yeah. this. I mean, it just, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much, how deep you want to get down this rabbit hole, but I, mean, I love going down this rabbit, the rabbit hole. I hope I mean, my listeners tell you how terrible, I mean, I, I get panic decisions. I get it, but the, 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 in X post, you know, if you do like a, you know, a postmortem, you know, if you're the coroner an economic corner, I mean, we could not have given all of the wrong people the most amount of money, basically. Everyone who's rich, old, and white got massive, massive injection and in capital and cash. Anyone who's young, working class, and an immigrant to this country got totally, totally shafted. Mm -hmm. And and, and, it's, and it, I find it fascinating, fascinating that more left-wing people in this country aren't furious with the government and the central bank. I, I just, as someone who, you know, I, I come from a working class background, you know, I know my parents were, are working class people. I consider my, I know where I, don't get me wrong, I wear cufflinks. <laughs> I, <laughs> Very nice cufflinks, I, by the way. <laughs> and, I, and I wear, I wear cufflinks and I worked in the city of London. I worked in Mayfair. So I get it. I'm yeah. a finance yeah. bro, but I know where I came from. And it is, to me, one of the more mystifying things that, that uh, it, it, I find it fascinating that more okay. like hardcore left-wing people are not, frankly, outraged at the policy 
because it was basically I, I can I, I have the chart. It was a transfer of wealth from the government to people who own property and own equities. Um, and, that, and it's 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 a shocker. It's a shocker to me. I okay, find it fascinating. so I'm going to give you my I'll give you my because it was a shocker to me too. And I'm going to give you my my theory on that. So that my philosophy on that. And you know we you know we look at. I think it's a case of left or right, to be honest with you. I mean, we see different degrees of rebellion and, you know, yeah, sure. anger and all the rest of it. I think there's a couple things that, you know, we have to consider is, you know, I'm, 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 I'm conscious of the fact that I thought from day one, it was a total overreaction. That was my view of it. Right from the day Me one, too. I went, this is, a, this is the, the wrong way to go. But that train left the station and there was no stopping it. But I did have, and I had, you know, I know other business guys, very successful business guys, and just people who, you know, are a little more, are more mature and have done well in their life. And I'm going, and and they're, they're leaders in the community. They're, they've got a voice. They are very, um, I, what would, I wouldn't know what the word is. They're, they're very vocal about what they think about politics and what they think about what's going on in their city and all the rest of it. And they're just, nobody was saying a fucking word. And I'm going, what the hell is going on? Like, how can you sit there and not be pissed off and be vocal? And then it occurred to me, this is just my theory. My theory is this, is that you said it, the transfer of wealth to that cohort was astronomic. Everybody who was rich or wealthy or got wealthy, got wealthy or you saw assets inflating. You saw real estate inflating. You saw Rolexes inflating. They're sitting back going, yeah, it sucks. You know, do you know what I'm saying? Like, are you going to, are you going to, you know, are you going to, I mean, how are you going to kill the golden goose? Are you going to kill the goose, right? You can bitch about it, but what are you at the fact of it? You're sitting in your, your, your large home or that you now can pay for, and you're going to retire early because, you know, you just made an extra million bucks on your house or whatever the numbers are. But do you understand? So that was my kind of theory. My realization around it was that because you, you have to ask yourself. And I also understand that, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and I don't want to be a, uh, you know, that, you know, we're all geniuses no, I, after the fact. No one wants fact. to be a Monday morning yeah. quarterback. Yeah. I, I understand that. Uh, there are some people who may or may not have said as much at the time because we've seen, but see, this is the frustrating thing for me as someone who's an economic historian who really, really cares about history. We didn't talk about history, but that's something else I really love and it really helps me with my job. But that similar thing, not only was it explicit in the document documents and documentation that Ben Bernanke, the Bank of England, Central Bank of Canada, they have papers that lay out what happens when you print money and lower <laughs> interest rates. It's not hidden, you know, it's on their website. It's ex Ben Bernanke in 2012 was on record as saying this will disproportionately benefit asset holders. The Central Bank of Canada had a paper in 2018 on what is quantitative easing and what happened. So, and, and so for me, so that's one thing. And the other thing is in, we saw it what happened in 2008. We saw it in 2009 a thing. And, and I think just, if I may just digress for one second, Patrick, uh, forgive me for this, but like the issue isn't that if, you know, when you hold a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I'm not saying that the, the initial panic wasn't the right thing to do. We didn't know. But as we became much, much, as it became clearer, yeah. 
it's the economic issue that I find so outrageous because you we knew it was a profound systemic transfer of money. The government borrowed money, handed it to landlords. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. And or maybe that's a bad analogy, but you know what I'm saying? And they and and it's and this idea that it wasn't understood that no one knew that would happen. I push back on that. I think 2009 and 10 was a clear speeches from central bankers in after the QE. And the other thing is, you know, the the reason quantitative easing was so effective in 2008 and probably the right thing to do was because the central, because banking system in the United States was bust. You know, I know for, forgive me for going down this road here, but I think it's an important discrepancy. The reason central banks had to print money and recapitalize the banking sector in America was because it was bust. They were bankrupt. It was over. The United States printed whatever trillion dollars, and they might call it something else, but in effect, they recapitalized the banks. The equity was worth zero. They effectively gave those shareholders, they, re- they made those shareholders whole. They took write downs on lots and lots and lots of, of assets that they had, and we muddled out of it a lot. The reason why the quantitative easing this time around was so pernicious and such an egregious transfer of wealth from governments to basically asset holders was because there was no right, there was no um, there was no corresponding write down of assets. Yeah. So, you know, banks that held mortgage-backed securities or had mortgage loans of Las Vegas properties, those properties went down 40% or those loans went to zero. There was a loss somewhere. So when you filled in, when you filled in the hole, you know, you're basically even. Whereas this time, the banks in the United States were, I would argue, overcapitalized. Canadian banks like them or hate them. They have, a diff, they have an okay tier one capital ratio. They're well capitalized. And so it wasn't, it wasn't a, it was a, it was a, an old tool used for the wrong crisis. And I think we're going to be, and the, the, the reason I worry about these things is not because my clients haven't made money. Listen, I, my portfolio's up. I, you know, my mother who's 72, her house is doubled in price. Who do you think is going to get that house? Like I get it. It's because when you have these dislocations and I bring the history back into this, when you have these dislocations where people know they've got fucked, they and then you get the inflation, and you we talked about the millennials not being responsible, not feeling like if they do the right things they will be rewarded. You get political dislocations that take years to unlock, and a lot of the time they those political dislocations do not end well. And mm-hmm. not to like over, not to belabor that point, but I just think we should be very very cautious. You know, you get the. You get the populist, you get you get that kind of stuff come out. Um, I think another example of something like that is, you know, environmental policy, where those same people now are telling the poor working class people that they need to pay more on their gasoline. So not all, I mean, and it's just, you know, and, and it's just starting to compound. And instead of seeing politicians going like, whoa, okay, we did what we thought was right. We made a mistake. Let's reassess what the act, you know what I'm saying? And there's mm-hmm. been no self-reflection, even as just a couple of days ago, Tiff Macklin, you know, I know I'm jumping around here, but I think it's all sort of related. It's like Tiff Macklin, they asked him, so, you know, he told everybody to borrow lots of money and interest rates would stay low forever and inflation wasn't a thing. And he's like, oh, well, oops, I got that wrong. And it's like, what the 
fuck, man, you're the most important like technocrat in the whole country. And you basically just said, oops, my bad. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and it's, that's why when I, I think like when I, I, you know, left wing, right wing, it is anachronism that maybe we should move away from because the truth is life is more complicated than that. Politicians and politics are more complicated than that. So forgive me for that overly simplistic sort of worldview, but for the argument, it makes sense. People who care about working class issues, the struggles, wages, inflation should be absolutely outraged about what has transpired over the last years. And in my view, they're not. They're worried about climate change and all kinds of bourgeoisie shit that doesn't matter to anybody who needs to worry about where the next meal is or whether inflation is 12% or 15%. And, and for me, as a study, as someone who studies economics, I know it's funny, right? My clients are all rich people and all I care about is working class because I don't, I know I've read, I've read, you know, I've read the, um, the French books on the French Revolution. You know, that's how it starts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, but but that is the problem with you know, and and to the degree that you and look at the research and you look at what's happening economically, and you're far more versed on it than I am. But I do understand and I do look at it, and I, I consider that you know people should be outraged, and I think many are. Many just have no idea. They're literally no, that's true. They, that's true. That's you know, true. for us, it's kind of like you know. This this conversation this conversation for me lights me up. I love these conversations. I love this depth. I love looking at it because I like testing my own theories against somebody who has a view of the world as well. But there's lots of people that still don't understand what you know what bonds have got to do with interest rates or what you know printing money and why you know why uh, why it matters how much money that the Bank of Canada and the government pushed out into the system. I mean, it, they have no idea what that represents and. So let me let me look at this. Let me look at this side of it. Is that I look what's happening politically around the world, but let's just talk about what's happening right here in Canada. You know, first off, I think there's a lot of people that just don't think they can do anything about what's happening. You've got, you know, our current liberal government with Justin at the, you know, at the pointy end of the spear that is become just off from my perspective, he's just off the rails in terms of how he's running the country, yet people continue to kind of put up with it. Of course, he that was he made a good political move. Love it or hate it, you know, him and NDP coming together and it is what it is. They're going to drive it. The Jack way Layton they... would be very proud. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I really like Jack Layton, by the way. He's a solid guy. God rest his soul. But, the, you know, so we look at what's happening and, and, I, and I have to look at because we talk about China a little bit and the U.S. and what's happening. We look at what is happening here in Canada and Canada is is going to be at the effect of what's happening globally, yet we seem to be right today in better shape than what's really in the underlying disaster that's happening around the world. And I'll use the U.S. as our neighbor as one aspect of that. We can look at what's happening with Russia and uh, Ukraine and, of course, the alliance with uh, China, just those, you know, with Russia and China hanging out together and what that's creating. And then the dark kind of conversation around uh, what's happening in terms of supply chain breakdowns and food shortages. And when you look at and consider your research, I look at that and I go, the light at the end of that tunnel is one big fucking train. I don't care what anybody says. That's a train coming down there. Now you're the ha glass half full guy. What do you see? Is that, is that light at the end of the tunnel? Some, some optimism about how this is all going to turn out? 
I mean, I watched a lot of Warner Brothers cartoons, and if I remember correctly, it's probably the Roadrunner with the <laughs> <Yeah>. headlamp. <laughs> okay, that's good. That's funny. So, um, but I mean, listen, I, I mean, I, I have a different view than Patrick. Thank you, by the way, for letting me be so free and open with my dialogue and conversations. You know, I'm of the view that we often think our own little era and time is the most dislocated and the craziest and i think we are often i'm guilty of this of course and i and i suspect that our society is often guilty of this of course in being a little bit myopic in how we view our own particular crises Mm -hmm. and i'm often and i try very hard to just be like okay hold on it's not the cuban missile crisis it's not, you know, China and India aren't having a war in 1977 or whatever it was. You know what I mean? Like, yes, Russia is very, very powerful, but they're a lot less powerful than we all thought six months ago. It's true, and right? China is, I would argue, a totalitarian regime, which who we should not trust at all but also kind of weak. They can't even sort out COVID. And meanwhile, you know, my friends in London are going to raves and, you know, doing whatever it is they're doing. So I I find that in general, whenever I hear the, you know, that it's, again, forgive me, I'm an, I'm I'm the child of immigrants. I'm an optimist. You know, if my parents were an optimist, they would have never got on the boat. Right. So forgive me for that sort of worldview. But I think in general, I'm, I'm very, very, cautious about saying like this is it you know we're fucked now it's over yeah you know human beings are very hard to kill Um, (laughs) that's true a a police officer once told me that by the way he goes people are not easy to kill you think they are they're not anyways okay go ahead well like humans are hard to kill we're really good at growing food we've you know despite what some politicians may think we've understand how important oil is for example we're really good at finding it we're really good at burning it do you know what i mean and so in general i I try very hard not to get sucked into that in Mm -hmm. favor of a more sort of sober look and so forgive me for that however yeah there's huge risks i think i think what we're seeing right now i think what's happening in china and ukraine sorry russia and ukraine i think sort of gets overlooked not because i mean listen there's people getting killed and it's that's definitely shitty to put it mildly yeah, yeah. but i think it's more about how there is a it's a schism it's a schism that i don't think will be addressed because i think that that's what happens when you have authoritarian regimes there's no feedback loop you know what i mean vladimir putin cannot lose if he loses he's he's either dead or out mm-hmm. and and that's just not a road that he can go down and i think that that's the part that makes it very dangerous and i also think what makes it it also exposes a lot of the the things that we thought to be true and we held sacred for example i think six months ago had you told me that the world was going to painlessly transition away from oil within my lifetime i think a lot of people would have said you know they would have nodded and said oh yeah sure sure and I think what something like what's happening in Russia and Ukraine exposes how much of a lie that actually is. Do you know what I mean? Like energy, how we produce it, how we provide it, how we transport it, how we allocate it, where it comes from, where it's used is extremely, extremely important. 
And I think that that's, for me, it's, it's more about those little switches here and there rather than a global overarching theme, if that makes sense. It does. To your point, you know, I love that. I'm still caught on the Roadrunner with the headlamp because I saw that coming, right? Like I, I can see that in my mind. <laughs> I've watched those cartoons. The point, I think there's a, there's a fundamental here. You know, number one is I don't think the world's coming to an end. What, I, what I'm looking at, and just because of the role I play within the Real Estate Investment Network and within that community, and of course, my own self, is I'm looking at the risks and I'm saying, how do I mitigate these risks? How do I you know, how do I, you know, guide myself? How do I support others and give suggestions of what that might look like for them? Things to consider as, as an investor, especially in the real, in the scope of real estate. But there's so many things that are now different than they've ever been before. There's so many moving parts because, you know, it's like the deglobalization conversation. It's the, this, the lack of productivity. It's the breakdown of food. It's the uh, monetary system is, is, you know, is the U S going to continue to be a reserve, the reserve currency and all, Yes, but not like it used to be. And there's so many dynamics that are happening. I find that it's, you know, for me, it's like trying to juggle what, where to go with it all. So here's an interesting, I want to just give you an interesting conversation around China that I, and I don't know where the, who was being interviewed, but it, it was so good. He was so good. I got to get his name again and, and find that interview. But he, he made something, a point that I thought was really really fascinating. So we know GDP in the US has gone down and it's actually pulled back, you know, I think it's negative territory, one point some percent, whatever that might be. And it'll be interesting to see where Canada is in the GDP, scope of GDP, but I'm expecting it'll be probably not as good as they expected, but it won't be, you know, it won't be down negative territory. The point is this, is that the fundamental challenge, and this is, you said China is not maybe as strong as they were because of what they're doing Given well, how, how strong as we, as we perceive them, as be, we I perceive think. them Sorry. to be, and I don't know if that's true. I think they're really freaking smart. So I know a little bit about China. I've been there many times, and I've uh, got friends that are in China right now. They're, they are very, they understand what's going on in Shanghai being shut down, the reality of that situation, uh, Beijing being shut down, or at least part of it, you know, 13 other cities being shut down. They, they're really understanding that. They're not in it because they're in different cities. But the point of it is that that supply chain is broken down. And that is both on the import and the export side of it. So here's the fundamental thing about that. The U.S. over the years has, and I'll use the U.S. as an example, Canada, I think, to the same degree or to a lesser degree because we're just a smaller country. But the point is, is that we import shit from China. Okay. Now, let's just use the, exa the example of the U.S. And this was really brilliant. And you know this to be true. So China exports. They ship stuff to the U.S. U.S. is producing less than they've ever produced before. So it's a wait. What do you mean by that? Well, what are they producing? They they can't. No, 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 no. They, no. Wait, they wait, wait. Sorry, 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 sorry. You mean you mean their debt? Their net exports. Their net the exports. Their been. net exports. Their industrial production and their manufacturing output is as high as it's ever been. Right, but their net exports. Their right is is on. So they're they're bringing in goods. Yeah, they're they're yeah. okay now. The point of that is more than they ever have before, right? And so they're paying China. This was a, such a cool argument. They're paying China in U.S. dollars, right? China's taking those U.S. dollars, and what's you, what are they doing with it? They're investing. Buying oil. They're buying oil. They're buying land. They're, they're putting those U.S. dollars. They're investing in assets with those U.S. dollars. 
And so we, they're actually growing an economy based on being paid in U.S. dollars. Well, the U.S. continues to import more than they export, and their economy is then weakening because of that. It's a consumer-driven economy. We know that debt-driven consumerism, and I think to a similar degree, I love the I love the fact that you're kind of going. Ah, I don't know about this. So, anyways, and I think Canada, as much as we have the the commodities to export, we do not step up to the plate. You know, we do not drive that bus hard. We, you know, we're still a small country. Our manufacturing isn't as strong as I think as it could be, but that's just my view of it. So, we too are, you know, our, our net export import i mean we're pretty close we, i mean we don't it's not like we're off the charts on either side of the equation no no it's because of oil though it's, if it wasn't for oil, I mean, was. I have an oil rant. <laughs> oh man if you let me give you an oil rant i'll give you one but if yeah. it wasn't for oil canada's net uh, current account balance would be one of the lowest in the world i know yeah, so there so yes so that's my point is that we look at these other countries and where canada is and 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 so so i say to myself okay i want to protect i want to look at the opportunities and this is where I want to get back to you a little bit. I want to hear what your view is of what I just said about China, the U.S. But I'm looking at it and going, okay, what? where do I park capital? I know that putting it in the bank and keeping it liquid is just stupid. You know, that's like that's a loss every year. And I don't think inflation, by the way, is going to get any better for – I know that – I th- it was either you or Keith think there's a tipping point and we're going to be good back half of 2022. I'm going, no way, dude. Like I'm I'm thinking it's going to get a little higher before it gets even close to being lower. Different conversation. Okay. So where was I going with this? So where do I do with my money? You know, not that I have a lot. So I've got a little bit of money. What am I going to do with it Real est- besides real estate? Okay. Well, first of all, I'm obviously having fun, as you can tell. Um, I like, I love this shit. I could talk about this crap all day long. This is what I love to do. So, come on, so I think there's like four things there, if yeah, I may. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please. Okay. So the thing on China, don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm not like. Uh, I don't think China is like a, some paper tiger. China, you know, it's got the second largest military in the world. Um, you know, they're clearly the largest exporter in the world, et cetera, et cetera. The problem. There's a couple of things with. When I when I say China was not as strong as what I meant was I think that there is there is a perception in the West that China is sort of unstoppable and that then I think that that in general should be a little bit you should be a bit more cautious about having this like you know I think the West is extremely self-deprecating and I think in a way that I find kind of obnoxious and I think that we just assume that because you know China can put up a hospital in ten days that somehow they've got it all sorted out. There's a couple of things that I think our listeners should know. China has horrible, horrible demographics. Yeah, they horrible do. That's a good point. So, 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 like to the point where they literally are starting to try to pay women to have children. We'll see how that works out. The problem is it's a very chauvinistic culture, and then you know, women who have babies they can't work. It's the same shit in Japan. Similar thing. So it's a very, it's a very, very tricky thing. Obviously, I'm not painting trying to paint every Chinese person with a brush, but just broad sure. strokes here. Yep. So you understand. The second thing is they have no resources. So what do I mean by they have no resources? They are extremely, extremely good at manufacturing, but you mentioned oil before. China, I think I put this chart on Twitter, China produces about 4 million barrels a day. I think they're the fourth or fifth fifth or sixth largest oil producer in the world. They consume like 12 million barrels of oil a day. Despite what Justin Trudeau may try to lead us all to believe, oil consumption is not going absolutely anywhere. Um, and they have no oil. They have very little water. 
They have very little, they don't have enough food, basically. They don't have enough foodstuffs in order to feed themselves. And so from a strategic point of view, it's a very, like, yes, there's a lot, a lot of good. There's also a lot of pinch points that I think are when we analyze that country and when we assess their viability, their strengths, their weaknesses, one must reconcile with those things that are frankly not going to change in the near term and also very, very important. Oil is the single most important commodity in the world and they have none of it. They don't have enough of it. Um, And this is why they're burning lots, they're building lots of nuclear power plants, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the China bit. The second thing, you know, the U.S. is screwed up in many, 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 many ways, but there's two things that it has going for it. Number one, they will protect capital above all else. And I think um, until Bernie Sanders and AOC become the president and vice president of America, and it becomes a communist shit all basically they, they will protect capital and and i think that that's a really really in this world of you know of that's a, i think very very important consideration there's another point where you know i think we often think of china sorry back to china one little second and like you know we often think of china as a, a country that produces a lot and it has a huge current account surplus which is true the thing is that there's a lot of leak china's a leaky boat why do you think the Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong real estate does so did so well? Why do you think the Vancouver real estate did so well? It's because if you're Chinese, you try to get money out of that country. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. If you're Canadian, you might invest in Portugal or, or Spain or whatever. And so that's okay. But the way that China has set up its monetary and fiscal sort of policy, that's not what they want. That's not what they perceive that's not what they perceive to be a good thing. And I think that's a really, really sort of important thing. If you're Chinese, you're trying to get your kids out and your money out. And I think that, that we should take that with the we should take that kind of action seriously, right? These are locals. They they care, they're probably extremely patriotic. They probably hate the American pig dog, but they still want to send their kids to Oxford, Harvard, and buy sure. an apartment in Vancouver. And I think it's those kinds of actions, I think, are very, they speak extremely loudly. Um, and the other thing is America owns the printing press. And I think that that's very, very powerful. You know, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion over the last 10 years about the the, the yuan petro currency, you know, yeah. trading oil for barrels of, um, sorry, trading rubles. Now we're seeing with Russia or trading yuan for the reality is the rest of the, a lot of the world doesn't want to do that. As much as the U.S., as much as the world hates the U.S., I think, you know, ask them if they want to trade with Yuan or you want, use Yuan in their trading and, and their uh, bills of lading or their credit uh, instruments, et cetera, et cetera. It's not clear at all that the rest of the world wants to do that. And I think that, you know, for the mistrust that there's a lot for the U.S., rightly so, on many, many reasons, I think that there's an equal amount of mistrust in, in, the, in the sphere of China. Um, and so I just think, I don't know, maybe I'm just a, a defender of sort of free market capitalism and the liberal democracies. And, yeah. and I think that that's, and I, and I, but I think that that's, those are important sort of little nuggets to just have in the back of your mind when you're reading about it and learning about it. As far as Canada, if I may, I think Canada is positioned to be one of the most powerful, richest countries in the world. A hundred percent. Yes. But why aren't we? Because we don't want to admit what we are. (laughs) And what we are is we're basically a mix of Switzerland and 
Norway with better demographics. And what do I mean by that? I mean by that, but we have, for all the misgivings about our banking system and all of the lack of productivity in this country, it's basically not a corrupt country. There's rule of law. It's a very safe and more or less neutral place to live. And it's got one of the largest oil reserves, largest mineral reserves. It's got the most amount of fresh water in the world, which we know, ask India how they feel about fresh water. And it's perfectly situated right next to the largest military industrial complex in the world. We are integrated with one of the only economies in the world that could basically tomorrow, if the United States didn't want to trade with anybody in the world, could more or less survive. I would argue that no other country in the world could probably do that. And, you know, and, and I think instead of this navel gazing of like, oh, energy is bad, oil is bad, blah, blah, blah. And like, we're not allowed to, for example, build hydroelectric dams, or we're not allowed to search for, dig up and process rare earth metals, or we're not allowed to, um, you know, dig and exploit our natural resources in an ethical and clean way. And that's what we have to offer the world. Um, the idea that Canada isn't full of nuclear power plants when we have the space, the uranium, and the engineers to accomplish that mission, to me, is a crime against humanity. Um, the fact that we haven't built a major hydroelectric dam such as James Bay in this country in 30 years is an outrage. Um, and so, and to me, it's, it's this idea that we're going to be a tech hub because it sounds nice and it's fancy is, is to me, as someone whose job it is to study economies, it's, it's very stupidly obvious what Canada should do. We should be the biggest ethical, safe, clean producer of natural resources in the world. And we should only trade with people who agree with our values. And if we tried to do that, I promise you that Canada would be an absolute powerhouse. And it's just, to me, it's, it's, in some ways, I see there's some shift towards that. But Canada has a lot, one of the largest oil reserves in the world. We're the fourth largest oil producer in the world. Canada produces 4.4 million barrels of oil a day, 97% of which go to the United States because we have no refining capacity in, in Canada. Why? Why can't we refine our own oil? Um, there's something called a crack spread, which is the difference between the crude oil, basically it's the difference between the crude oil and the price that you get when you refine. There's loads of money that you can tax, tax the shit out of it if you want to. Why can't we refine 99% of our oil here and then sell the finished product out elsewhere? Canada has, is one of the largest physical countries in the world. What does that mean? It means we have, just by default, we probably have the largest amount of lithium reserves in the world. We have all the engineers, the McGill's, the University of Toronto, all, all these people are leaving to go instead of we should be basically unlocking the power of the North. And, and the reason I say this, and I always repeat this, ethically and clean, Canada cares about the environment. This idea that Canadians don't is a lie. Of course we do. Like, if we built a mine in northern Quebec, we would not be polluting the rivers there. It's just not true. Mines and the rare earth metal processing facilities that are in China destroy entire regions. I, I would bet my mother's life that it would not that would not occur if it was in Nova Scotia or New Brunswick or in Ontario. 
The people who would work there would have hard hats. They would have pensions. They would have health care. They would have proper PPE. So this, I, and instead of leaning in to what to me is an absolute gimme putt, we are just, we've, we have this obsession with decarbonizing and all this stuff. And it's, and to me, it's, 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 sound, it's one of those things that just sounds great, but is like profound and systematic economic self-harm. It, All right, there's my oil rant. <laughs> that was such a good rant. And I couldn't agree with you more on just pretty much every single thing that you said there. And you say it way more eloquently than I do. So good job. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, we've said for years, I've said for years, food, fuel, fertilizer. Canada has an abundance of it. And to your point, we can, you know, we we look at India, we look at China just as two obvious examples of who needs our stuff. I mean, I think the best move, one of the best moves, and I don't remember what year it was. And, you know, when China moved in, they wanted to get into Saskatchewan and buy the the potash mine and and and, the, and that was shut down. That was like a brilliant move. Shut it down. But we should not let any Chinese company buy any. I'm, but, a, free, I'm, a, I'm a pure market free capitalist as you could possibly get. We should not let any Chinese company buy a, a house on Roby Street. We should not let them buy anything in Canada. Sorry. sorry well, and Canada. I think that goes for any country. China aside, we own our resources. It's it's what we got to hang on to. It is those are our assets that we have to look after. That's that's what gives us you know the prosperity. That's what gives us the economic punch that we need to uh, grow a, a grow a culture, grow a country. And we just don't seem to tap into it at all. Yeah, there's another, there's another angle to this. You know, you mentioned manufacturing. The reason China manufactures so many goods is because they have cheap energy. A hundred. Wow. They have coal power plants. That's it's one of excuse me. It's one of the excuse me. It's one of the reasons they are able to manufacture as much steel as you they do is because steel is extremely extremely energy intensive. Here's a tangible example of anybody in Canada above a certain age will be able to appreciate. The company Alcan exists in Quebec because of the hydroelectric dam that produced enough cheap and renewable abundant energy to park an aluminum facility, which by the way, takes an extreme amount of energy to produce right next to the fucking hydroelectric dam. So that's why Alcan exists. So, you know, if Canada produced dozens of hydroelectric plants and had nuclear power plants coming up the yin-yang, you can be a world producer in steel because the major input, the major limiting factor in producing steel, aluminum, lithium batteries, in rare processing, rare earth metals, and all that shit is cheap energy. And so it's, it's to me, it's, a, it's I, I, will, I honestly, I get frustrated. As you can tell, I'm really quite passionate about this because I love Canada and I'm an economist and I just see this like, gaping net we have the stick we've got the puck and it's just we refuse to just do what to me seems should be really natural and it's just it's a shame and, and that's why i think ultimately hopefully the market will win out i think it'll become so obvious oh sorry there's one more thing that i think is really important the other asset that we have in this country is our values oh so so good great point and, yes and our and our values should not. And what I what do I mean by our values? I mean, like freedom of speech. Like we care about workers' rights. People have pension. If you're the janitor for the local high school team, you have a pension. Mm. And I think that like we we like 
that's what I mean by those those values are an asset, you know. And I think that you know, and we're nice people. You, we're nice people. Don't forget that. And so we should exploit that yes, asset. Totally. And you can you can exploit natural and we can listen. People in Canada care about the environment. We care about fishing. I mean, you know, lakes and trouts and shit like that. And I and I think if you put the emphasis, whether it's legally or regulatory or whatever, you say, listen, we're not going to charge you a dollar of tax, but if you hurt one beaver in this natural park, you're all going to jail or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, totally. there, there, there's ways that you can sort of have that quid pro quo, which is, here's what here's what the project is. You know, if you hurt this, like, freckled frog in, like, the northern British Columbia, I don't know, you know, something happens to your family. Or something <laughs> like totally, yeah. We're going to take your family out. Okay, so we have anyway. to start to wind down here a little bit. I know oh, I, I, this is perfect because I, I, listen, I could go on, I could... I could have this conversation for a long time. Uh, the the question that comes to, you know, so we identify these, you know, to us, what seems like obvious challenges and like, why aren't we doing this and all the rest of it. But the the current environment is what it is. You know, the current politics are what they are, what's happening globally, you know, what seems to be, like I say, the deglobalization, West, East, whatever division that is starting to form, uh, what's happening in the, uh, you know, EU, that it, there's a lot of stuff going on. So here's the question. What the hell do we do with our money? Where do we, oh. where are we? We got to come back to that question. We, I asked it and we never got to it because we we're so oh, busy pointing out. No, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> so what are we going to do with our capital? You know, real estate is the thing. Now, here's, I, I'm, I'm a, a fan of uh, Jim Rickards and, you know, Jim Rickards, I was listening to him one day and, you know, he said it used to be, you know, a, uh, a diversified portfolio represented, you know, 25 or 30 or 40 stocks. And he goes, that just isn't the case anymore. He says, diversified portfolio in this day and age means you have to have real estate. You have to have precious metals. You have to have some cryptocurrencies. Yes, you need a stock market, but you know, you need stocks. You got to pay attention to what those stocks are. It's not like you can just throw it at the S&P or wherever. You have to really be specific, you know, really specific what's happening. In his world right now, he says commodities, to your point around uranium, you know, the uranium is going to continue to be fired up. Japan is actually not shutting down however many of their uranium uh uh, produce plants, uh, whatever they're called. I've just lost it. The, but the point is, is that, you know, you got to look at those commodities and really diversify in that direction. But given what you do and given how you advise, what are you seeing as opportunities, Richard? Yeah. So, I mean, in general, I would be very careful about commodities as a pure play investment, just purely because there's lots and lots and lots of oil out there. Right. It's just about extracting. So, I mean, in general, commodities are highly, highly cyclical and they can be, it's really boom bust. We're in a situation where I, so just in general, I would just be caution people. It's not a buy. And it's not like you can't, it's not like real estate. You know, you buy an apartment in, in Toronto and you might hold it for generations because it'll yeah. eventually you'll pay it off yeah. and it'll give you a yield and it's inflation protected, blah, blah, blah. So commodities is like a very, very cyclical thing. I would just, I would caution people. But I think, so we, we mentioned real estate before. I think, in you know, despite people's misgivings and sort of the more short-term dislocations we might get because of interest rate policy, et cetera, I think Canada is a great place to invest in with respect to real estate. Land, I think, is a really, really interesting one that, um, you know, if you, if you can hold it and not necessarily, um, and you don't need yield, 
I think that's a fascinating kind of wrinkle. One of the best investments I ever made was, you know, two acres of land in Northern Quebec. I wish I could build a nuclear power plant on it. I, <laughs> I, I applied. They didn't give me zoning, unfortunately. But the other, and, and, but as far as equities, I mean, um, sorry, sorry, before we get to equities, I think, the, I think government bonds are basically dog shit. That's a technical term. I think that that's, um, I think it's, I think bonds, you know, we were, we were at the end of a 40 year bond bull market. So to say that bonds can't be a good investment is wrong. It's been a fantastic investment, one of the best, you know. I just think that that situation is now past, and that's okay. I mean, that's what sort of thing happened. So, you know, a lot of older people might have in their mutual funds a significant holding, whether they know it or not. I would suggest you ask your, your investment professional. They might have a significant holding in fixed income or bonds. I think that all of even though we might have a good month here or a good year there, I think in general, the best of those real returns are behind us. I think I will get on to the specifics, my specific views on equities um, in a second. But in the, the problem with what you've described, which is interest rate environment, the deglobalization, worries about productivity, worries about this, worries about that, all of that to me speaks that we're probably entering an era where everyone's going to be disappointed on their returns. And that's not a fun thing to say, but that's what I believe. I think we've had an incredible, incredible rise if you're an asset holder over the last 30 years. Whether you think it's right or wrong is irrelevant. That's what's happened. And I think that we're entering a period where and I'm not saying it's going to last forever, but I think we're entering a period where the, the type of returns that people got on their bond portfolio, their equity market portfolio, their real estate portfolio is not going to be as good because you don't have the kicker from the compressing interest rates. You're, we Back to this MCAP, this market cap game. That is, but I think that there are extremely good opportunities within the, the equity sector for someone who obviously hires me, but, you know, for example, I, I'm really, you know, you've heard of value versus growth. Um, there's been a lot of talk about that recently. I think that value, for example, and you can look at ETFs and there's specific funds that do this kind of thing. You know, I'm not the first or last person to talk about this, but value um, as, you know, companies that have short duration cash flows that pay dividends, have visibility yes, on earnings. Yes that have low price earnings ratios, et cetera. I think that that's really, really attractive in that space. Again, keeping in mind that your overall returns will probably be lower. And then the other thing is, I think on the shorter term thing, is I think defensives are really attractive. Um, consumer staples for the first time in a generation have pricing power. Telecom services, which would have been like, the, which for years have been a totally shit investment. These companies all of a sudden can increase their they can maintain, God forbid, even increase their margins, you know, and, and that's kind of a fascinating kind of change that we've seen. And so defensives are attractive. And then for me, very specifically, even if we're going to go to the next level level of granularity, the, the sector that I love, which you won't be surprised about at all, is, um, is energy. I think um, energy, I think, you know, the big lie that we've been told over the last five or six years is that, that human beings can just pivot away from consuming fossil fuels next weekend and every, we're going to live in a happy, lucky way. We're going to have dandelions and we're going to be doing acid on Woodstock. And <laughs> I mean, it's just, 
it's a profound dislocation from reality. And I think that as a result, it's basically provided a generational money-making opportunity. Yeah. And, I'll, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll wrap it up with this. Like, human beings consume 100 million barrels of oil a day in one day. One barrel of oil is 159 liters, 42 gallons. That's not going anywhere. Um, all of the, the countries that have the highest growth rates of population are all places where they can't just buy an, a subsidized EV. They need cheap, abundant energy for them to climb up the human development index or whatever you want to call it. And those kind of those at Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, it's, you know, Southeast Asia, all that stuff. Oil consumption is going up. The problem, so we know that demand basically for the commodity is locked in. The problem is that capital expenditure to extract oil is at 20-year lows. Yeah. So how, how do you measure, so how you say, Rich, how do you know for sure that that's true? There's two ways. One is you do a CapEx relative to sales or CapEx relative to total assets. If you take all of the equity market all the companies in the, in the global equity market, and you compare how much they're spending on exploration and delivery, it's relative to the assets, relative to sales, relative to whatever you want, it's basically at a 20-year low, unlike in 2008 when it was at 20-year highs, right? And then the other thing is, um, and, and the other thing is it takes time to build a rig, to build a pipeline, to build this, to build that. And so you're in a situation where because of divestitures, because of ESG, which is the biggest lie in the history of the world, we'll get into that maybe next time, Yes. Um, because of all of the divestitures by raising the cost of capital and the cost of funding and by convincing everybody that we don't need oil anymore, you, we've, it, it's this like amazing once in a generation like setup that companies, oil companies are going to make money hand over fist for the next I don't know, three, four, five, six, seven years. I think that that's, you know, I tell my analyst, Nathan, you know, in my career, I'll maybe, maybe have like five great ideas. You know, I figure I'll work in this business for 50 years. If I have one great idea every 10 years, I think I could, you know, die a happy man. And I think want this, I wrote about it last April. I'm happy to share with you some of my notes that I've written. And I think energy, um, and I'm not the only one who's written about this. There's yeah. some really brilliant people in Canada who've also written about it. So I'm, I'm not saying I'm a genius. I'm not. But this to me is one of my like career calls. I wasted it <laughs> living in Halifax. <laughs> so, but, but it's such a great conversation because I think so many people expect expected energy to crater for forever. And I think, I think we're all... It I, did. It well, did. Well, not... Yeah, it did. It did. You're right. I mean, but if you have, if you look at what's happening right now, I guess is my, more my point is that yeah. if we look at, to your point, this is an opportunity. And I think that energy is a, is a great sector. I believe oil is probably, I don't know what it's at today. You know, I think we're still, I think we're over a hundred bucks. It was in kind of, yeah, hundred bucks. Somewhere in there. I think, you know, I think, you know, I, I, the guys that I'm following that are big energy guys are going, it will easily hit a hundred and a half. That's what their, their predictions and their forecasts are. I was going to say, it doesn't even have to. That's, yeah. that's the crazy, that's the crazy thing. You know, people yeah. always talk about break even rates in Canada's oil sands is like 55 bucks or 60 bucks or whatever. That's the, the, it's, 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 it's very rare that something like this happens, especially in the commodity space. Cause like general commodities are terrible businesses to own. Yeah. But every once in a while, you just get this 
sweet spot and you just you know and you gotta gotta go with it take advantage and and listen don't don't come back to me in 30 years and say richard i held on to the stocks for 30 (laughs) years and and made the shit this is like you know this is one Uh, of those things you 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 take what you can get when you can get it and when you've had your fill you 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 take your foot off the gas but it's one of yeah i definitely think that there's more there's more juice in that turnip yeah and i love it so the one thing that you haven't talked about and and just you don't have to spend any time on it but are you you're not a crypto guy you're not a bitcoin ethereum you're not a crypto guy i know steve is sureski is but i get impression that you're not or keith is not i mean hopefully one day we can talk about how dangerous central bank digital currencies are we don't have time oh man that years we can talk dude we get we can do four shows I can tell you right now. I think everybody listening should be absolutely terrified of global uh, central bank crypto. Yeah. Um, central, central bank, bank digital, digital currency. And yeah. They're horrible. As far as Bitcoin, I do own some Bitcoin. You know, it's like a 5% of my total sure. net worth. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's a purely an option value. Yep. I said to myself, uh, if it goes, if it quadruples or quintuples from here, I don't yep. want to be looking back 10 years now and be like, oh, I really should have owned it. Yeah. Do I think it could go to zero? probably it, it's purely option value it, yeah. as far as i'm concerned it's just option i'm, value. I'm a big I don't think you, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bigger believer in it than you are but that's the, yeah, yeah. the only time <laughs> will tell uh and what about precious metals you know if we lose u.s reserve currency if we fiat currencies you know collapse you know uh that's a hedge it's an insurance i don't think it's oh, an yeah. investment i mean i think precious metals are really good to have in your soft drawer yeah you know, especially, you know, you know, ask the people who lived in Warsaw in sure. 1939. Um, but, you know, I think in general, I mean, I do have it in my portfolio. Yeah. Um, I think the problem we will see and the thing I tell my clients is real interest rates dictate for now. I mean, I've got some great charts on it for the last like 10 or so years where in real interest rates. So interest rates adjusted for inflation go that's where oil inverted, that's where gold will go. And until you get that break in that relationship, which has happened in the 70s, which has happened in the 80s, which has happened in different times, it's very, you know, you'll get, you're going to expect bad returns in there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we got to wind this down, dude. Like I could be on here all the time, but there's there's some rapid fire questions that I want to throw at you, have a little fun <laughs> with them. Go for it. And so uh, let's uh, let's kick off a couple things. So, Favorite book? Do you have one or one that you would gift because it's so good? Um, so like the kind of nonfiction and fiction? Whatever. Yeah. Do nonfiction and fiction. So any fiction, anything written by Kurt Vonnegut, I think is amazing. Yeah. For nonfiction, anything written by Eric Hobsbawm. It's a his, he's like card carrying communist who grew up in England. <laughs> who grew up in England, but he's an amazing historian. Uh, so that's awesome. So it's amazing. I, I love him, even though I'm I'm like a you know card carrying capitalist. But he's a brilliant historian, you know. And it's just, anyways, fantastic. iPhone or Android? Uh, iPhone. Okay. Favorite tune? Favorite tune? Yeah. You have one favorite? Music? Tune? Yeah, music. Oh, anything, anything gangster rap between 1996 and 2002. Really? Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> Tupac, Tupac, Nas. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that's Dr. great. Dre, uh, do you have a favorite movie? Probably. I mean, anything sci-fi. I love Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love uh, I like, like any, yeah. I love okay. sci-fi. I don't yeah. have a favorite movie. Your room, your desk, or your car. 
What do you clean first? Room, my desk. Room. Okay. What do you want God to say when you get to the gates? Assuming there is a God. Good boy, Charlie Brown. <laughs> and and what are you grateful for? I'm uh, grateful for my parents. Beautiful. And I am grateful for having you join me as a guest on the show today. As I always am, I'm also very grateful for my wife, my family, my life. So, uh, Richard, it has been an absolute pleasure. Loved this freaking conversation, dude. And uh, and thanks. Thank you so much for, for having for me. I hope I, I hope I didn't scare away <laughs> your listeners. <laughs> well, we both did because it was good. No, uh, really, really great. I think it's a relevant and an important conversation for people to really pay attention to. Uh, where are they following you? Uh, you're on Twitter. Well, you're on Twitter quite a lot. So, what what you what's your handle on on Twitter? Yeah, so it's Richard Diaz underscore CFA. Yeah. Um, I, I post lots of charts yeah. and I, yeah, I yeah. try to educate and inform. Awesome. And then you can find my, um, you can find what I sell. And uh, so be the research notes. I have loads and loads of free stuff, by the way, on my website. Fantastic. Um, if you want a chart, there's a chart back on oil. There's, I have sectors. Is there, are you, uh, what, what's, your, what's your website? Acorn Macro? What Acorn is it? MC. .co.uk or acornmc.ca. Beautiful. Beautiful. Richard, thanks again. And we're definitely going to have to do this again. So thanks a lot. Okay, cool. Man, thank you. I really appreciate it. It was really fun. It was fun. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends as it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener. If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.